0: Paying for graduate school is hard, and a master's in teaching degree is no exception. Many students seeking master's degrees take out five-figure loans that are tough to pay back on a teacher's salary, not to mention what happens to those who can't find a job in the classroom. But one graduate school of education in Boston has introduced a new financial model. Its students pay for their master's degree only if they're hired by a school of their choosing. The model is a distinctive version of what's known as an income share agreement, an approach to financial aid that's finding a growing foothold in American education. How exactly does it work? And could it become a model for ed schools elsewhere? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Mike Goldstein. A serial education entrepreneur, Mike is the founder of Match Charter School in Boston and of its Charles Spassado Graduate School of Education. Along with Spassado's current dean, Scott McHugh, Mike's the author of a new blog post, How Income Share Agreements Helped Our Education School Grow that's available now at educationnext.org. Mike, welcome to the Ednext Podcast. Hey, Marty. So the Spesado Graduate School of Education that we're going to be discussing today is an outgrowth of MATCH Charter School, which you also founded. Why don't you tell us a little bit about MATCH and what led you all in 2011 to take on the additional challenge of launching a brand new Graduate School of Education?
1: Uh, MATCH started pretty close to where we're sitting, I think a couple rooms over. I was a grad student in 1996 at the Kennedy School of Government. I learned about charter schools and I wanted to start one. Uh, I wrote a charter application uh, after a certain amount of rejection and failure. It got approved in 99 and the school opened in 2000. Charles Spizzato was the name of our founding principal and he'd been a lifelong uh, teacher an educator in Framingham. Um, he'd won Massachusetts Teacher of the Year. He taught for 33 years. He became our founding principal. And so we started a small charter school in Boston with a college prep mission. And
0: Spasado is one of a number of activities that Match has engaged in over the years to try and have an impact at scale. But unlike some of the other charter names that people will be familiar with, KIPP, Uncommon, and the like, it hasn't taught to scale its impact by opening a great number of schools. Uh, it's taught to do something else. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so you know, we're big fans of KIPP, Common, Achievement First, um, all the, the charters that have managed to grow and grow with, uh, with great fidelity to their model. Uh, Match has tried uh, in different ways to add to the list of ideas, to try things. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Uh, and to scale our impact Um, through new models and spreading them in different ways.
0: So getting a Graduate School of Education off the ground is no small task. You need to secure accreditation and state approval. And of course, you ultimately need to convince students to attend. As I understand it, the financial model that you adopted and we want to zero in on today, was an attempt to solve that latter challenge, to convince students to attend. How how so?
1: for a student who's thinking about any type of grad school, obviously you're also thinking about what what's next, what's my job, and how much am I borrowing and, you know, how will I pay it back? And so the way a lot of grad schools, a traditional grad school, will attack that is they'll say, don't worry, we have really good career services, and they hope in some cases that students don't peer – too carefully into the statistics about what the typical job outcomes of their grads are and if you're new obviously you have no reputation so what we wanted to do is make it easy for a would-be teacher to say huh I could join these guys at the Sposato grad school of education learn how to be a school teacher and if they don't do a good job and I don't get hired I have no risk i don't owe them any money they're not locking me into a conventional loan they're basically saying your tuition is owed only when you have a job so
0: how exactly does this model work how do you make that guarantee that concept a reality
1: well there's two sides to it so one is just a straightforward agreement with a student we say here's your contract you only pay us um, when you get a job and over the course of typically the, three, the first three years that you're teaching. And the details of that has changed a little bit over the years. But for example, um, in our blog on EdNext, we describe a 2018-19 student, $12,000 that you owe, assuming you get a job that we help you find, and you pay it back $4,000 per year for the first three years of teaching.
0: Now, income share agreements are still pretty unusual in American higher education, but There are a growing number of colleges that are experimenting with them. Purdue University under Mitch Daniels is one example. Another that you mentioned in the article is the University of Utah that, as I understand it, now lets students pay for college by agreeing to return 2.85% of their income over the next three to 10 years, depending on what they study. And that amount is capped at two times the amount borrowed. So that basic approach, the idea of charging students a Percentage of their income is the most common version of an income share agreement. What led you all to settle on a fixed amount approach that you just described?
1: Right. So just to simplify it, there's two pieces, let's say, of an income share agreement. One is who has the risk if you have no income? And is it the institution that was supposed to help you get trained to get a job? Or is it you, the borrower? And of course, in all the ways that we understand, it's always the borrower who absorbs the risk. All the income share agreements shift that risk to the institution. So that's one big component. After that, there's a second component where things start to get, let's say, multifaceted. And so what we found is, you know, with the University of uh, Utah offer, for example, if you borrow $20,000, because that's what you owe them, that's what you took from them to pay for your education. What you pay back may be 20,000, maybe up to 40,000, maybe done after four years, it may be done after 10 years. there's a lot of variability in the way the payback works. Now that can be good in certain uh, majors or courses of graduate study, right? Because if you're learning computer programming, we want the institution to have an incentive for you to get a job that pays you $150,000, not $50,000, and so we want the institution to have an income share agreement that shares in your upside. But it doesn't work as well for teaching because teaching salaries are, you know, we don't necessarily want you chasing a job just because it pays a few thousand dollars more, and the, the salaries are pretty compressed along a band for new teachers. What that all means is that what we at Spizzato chose is we just want it to be easy and simple. We don't want to introduce too much terminology. So we just say it costs you $12,000 to go here, pay us back over three years, no interest. If you don't get a job, you don't owe us anything.
0: But one of the advantages of charging students a percentage of their income is that you do get to collect more from those students who end up in very high paying occupations. So yes, if a student has taken out a loan with a value of $20,000 and ends up paying 40,000 back, capturing that upside means that you can charge everyone a lower rate overall. And so you don't get that advantage of capturing the upside out of this fixed amount approach. So the question I have is how do you keep that amount that you're charging so low? $12,000 $12,000 over three years sounds like a remarkable bargain for a master's degree.
1: Well, I'm glad you see it that way. <laughs> it is a remarkable bargain um, for, for what you're getting and, and all the one-on-one attention. Um, but the other side of our funding is the Spizzato School is Unusual in that it's able to charge the schools a placement fee for the right to hire one of our graduates. So the... Each sort of small graduating Spizzato class is recruited pretty heavily by a number of schools, particularly charter schools, who want somebody who understands the specifics of how to build relationships with kids, who understands a lot of the details of what would lead to students making large gains in math or English. And so they're willing to pay a premium for that. And so Sposato collects typically $8,000 from a elementary or middle or high school that hires one of our graduates. So from our point of view, that's $20,000 of revenue associated with each grad.
0: So if I'm a school district and I'm not willing to pay the finder's fee that Spizzato charges, I can't hire one of the
1: graduates. That's right. I mean, the, in practical terms, what happens is uh, the, if you will, they get jobs, offers so quickly. Usually around February, March, Spazzato team says, go to a number of different schools that have hired the Spazzato graduates over the years. You're free to recruit. And very quickly, all those teachers are, you know, kind of, they've gotten offers, often multiple offers. And so they lock in. Um, and then they, they pay the fee. We, we also do the same thing in terms of risk to the employer. We say if for any reason you're not satisfied with somebody you recruited from Spizzato, let's waive the $8,000 fee. So we, in every way, we want to take the risk that our teachers are going to turn out to be effective with kids.
0: And my understanding is that you've had plenty of organizations that are willing to pay this fee. You report in the article that you have... job placement so far, close to 300 students having gone through the program. How should we think about that number? 100% seems almost unbelievable.
1: Yes, I think there's a couple things. The most important, Marty, is that baked into that number is compared to other grad schools, we're always trying to have an honest conversation with the the grad students themselves about whether, in fact, they want to pursue teaching. So September 1, they all, obviously, in good faith, they show up, they want to learn how to be a teacher. But they're doing a lot of work in schools as they're studying. And, you know, after some weeks and months, it's common for some people to realize this isn't really what they want to do. Or our particular way of teaching is not necessarily the way they want to teach. Or the types of schools, the high-poverty schools, and particularly charter schools where our graduates go, are not the kinds of places they ultimately want to work. And so we encourage that. We, we call it healthy exit. We want people to feel like it's easy to depart without your tail being between your legs and you feel somehow bad about the process. And in those cases, you owe us nothing. You don't owe us anything until you choose to enter the job market. We lock in once you've committed to becoming, you know, to accepting an offer and to being a teacher.
0: Now, one of the consequences of this financial model is that you have a strong incentive. In fact, you need to remain in touch with your graduates over an extended period of time after they leave. And you note in the article that this has had some maybe unanticipated benefits for the schools. How has that worked to your advantage?
1: I think what Scott McHugh, the Dean, and Laura Mahajan, who leads all the coaching, would say is, over the years, by staying in touch with the grads and the principals who have hired them, you get this incredible feedback loop on what our rookie teachers are good and bad at. And so that feedback loop constantly updates the curriculum of what exactly are we teaching to these future teachers? how are we coaching them, where are we strong, where do we need to get better? And that drive is very strong because we know that people won't pay us the $8,000 placement fee and they won't hunger to hire our teachers, which is the mechanism by which we get paid back, if we're not taking their feedback and actually changing things each year to improve.
0: So this sounds like a win-win solution at least from Spesado's perspective. Would it also be a win-win solution for other places should other places be doing this and if so, who are the most likely adopters? Where could you see this model spreading?
1: I think any place where the graduate school or program believes in its va- its economic value proposition and sort of has data to show, wow our graduates out there do really well, then if that's true, the risk to the institution is obviously fairly low, right? You have a great track record and you take 100 people, if a few of the 100 essentially default on their income share agreement by not being employable, that's not a problem in the scheme of things. However, if you're a program and you know, half of your graduates go on to struggle to get jobs or jobs in the industry, then obviously an income share agreement is not, not the right road.
0: My guest today has been Mike Goldstein, founder of the Charles Spasado Graduate School of Education and author of How Income Share Agreements Helped Our Education School Grow, available now at educationnext.org. Mike, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks, Marty. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.